Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, episode 105, Oswego. In our last episode, we focused on the wider events around the Seven Years' War. We looked at how war broke out in Europe when Prussia attacked Austria, and we went over events in India as the Third Carnatic War got underway, and then we finished off by looking at Pitt's rise to power, ending up with him in control of the government as Secretary of State for the Southern Department, leaving day-to-day administration in the hands of the Lord of the Treasury, the Duke of Devonshire. While all of this is important for the story, and very interesting as well, we did get away from our main focus, North America, to which we shall now return. We last spent time in North America back in episode 102, Monongahela, in which we looked at the disastrous campaigns of 1755. The British campaign in the Ohio was a disaster, as Braddock was killed and his force destroyed. The second in command, William Shirley, abandoned his open campaign as he lacked money, and the French force were being strengthened with reinforcements from Europe. The only positive had been William Johnson's campaign with the Mohawks against Fort St. Frederick. The British didn't actually do anything against Fort St. Frederick, because it was that sort of year, but they managed to secure an area on the south side of Lake George, founding the fort William Henry. Reports from America during 1755 made their way back to London, in which William Johnson, among others, denounced Shirley for his poor command skills and his meddling in Indian affairs. Halifax, ever the supporter of centralisation, recommended this new commander-in-chief be sent to the colonies with a rather expensive set of reinforcements, funds for provincial troops, and a centralised storehouse for provisions. This was ignored, although William Johnson was given his own royal commission as Colonel of the Six Nations. Fox and Cumberland proposed an Indian superintendent for the southern colonies, which would be Edmund Atkin, a trader from South Carolina. Reinforcements would be sent, but they would be redcoats. Cumberland disliked the idea of provincial troops. Newcastle had long been a patron of William Shirley, but agreed with the other ministers that he should be replaced. Another commander-in-chief would be sent with the same mandate as Braddock. The man sent was John Campbell, the fourth Earl of Loudoun, a highly effective military administrator. Thomas Pownall, an opportunist, whose letter-writing had been instrumental in Shirley's political downfall, took over the governorship of Massachusetts Bay. Meanwhile, the French were organising themselves too. Six French warships arrived in Canada in May 1756, carrying the new French commander, Louis-Joseph Marquis de Montcalm Gozon de Saint-Varin, an experienced professional officer. The conflict for the next three years in the North American theatre would be waged between the two individuals of Montcalm and Loudoun. 1756 started with Shirley making plans for the new year, which were quite realistic. He knew the area well, 
and so made plans that relied only on the colonies he trusted to be enthusiastic, Massachusetts and Connecticut. Troops being available only for a limited period of time, and he needed to keep provincials apart from regulars. This was a wise decision due to two recent laws, one meaning that provincials had the same harsh discipline of the regular British army, and another which subordinated all provincial officers to regular officers. Even the most senior of the provincial officers would be subordinate to any regular junior officer, even one appointed the day before. This would, obviously, make serving in the provincial forces unappealing to any men of ability. The British really didn't help themselves. We won't focus on the plans Shirley was making, because soon enough he started hearing rumours that he had been replaced. In June, Loudoun's second-in-command, Major General James Abercrombie, arrived in Boston to relieve Shirley of his commands. He accepted the news gracefully and travelled to New York to await the arrival of Loudoun. Abercrombie wanted to take no action which would later reflect badly on him, so took no action at all. Loudoun finally arrived in New York one month later. After speaking with Pownall, Loudoun believed that the first thing he would need to do would be to arrange matters with Shirley. From the moment he set foot on North American soil, Loudon was met with a barrage of complaints about Shirley. How he had been organised, how his forces were acting almost independently, how dire the situation was at the British forward camps of Oswego and Crown Point. Very quickly, Shirley began to understand just how dire the situation was for him, and that he was at risk of prosecution in London for incompetence. He immediately started sending his own barrage of letters to Loudon to defend his actions, but Loudon was not impressed. He was particularly annoyed by Shirley's use of provincials rather than regulars, viewing them as a mob rather than a trained army. To give you some sense of the kind of man Loudon was, on the road to his estate in Ayrshire was a wood which had been planted like an infantry regiment in review, with each tree in the position a man would be. Yeah, I know. Peak 18th century extra. Loudon was a very interesting individual, and his reports to Whitehall offer fascinating insights into the state of American politics in the 1750s. He writes that the provincials did not properly subordinate themselves to authority. He had particular criticism for the New Englanders and their obsession with contracts. He seemed to sense a change happening, and a deep suspicion that the British would try and claim direct control over their colonies. Indeed, he had no understanding of the forces that had shaped New England over the previous century, and a half that had made it a very different place from the European state he had arrived from. It was the case with all of the colonies though, not just New England. A useful example of this is the case of housing soldiers. 
colonies refused to house the soldiers that had been gathered for a campaign. Shirley paid the market rate for housing troops while he had been commander-in-chief, which had contributed greatly towards draining his treasury, but meant for less problems. Loudon was appropriately scandalised, and insisted that the colonies pay, and was even more surprised when this met with universal resistance, even at his headquarters in Albany. Americans told him that the right of protection against the arbitrary quartering of soldiers was one of their most cherished rights as Englishmen. Loudon couldn't understand why the Americans didn't seem to understand the notion of self-sacrifice, and he met with no support from the governors, who were paid by the assemblies. Loudon himself wrote back to London that the governors, quote, sold the whole of the king's prerogative to get their salaries, and till you find a fund independent of the province to pay the governors and a new model of government, you can do nothing with the provinces. I know it has been said in London that this is not the time. If you delay it till a peace, you will not have a force to exert any British acts of Parliament here, for though they will not venture to go so far with me, I am assured by the officers that it is not uncommon for the people of this country to say they would be glad to see any man that dare exert a British act of Parliament here. End quote. It's quite clear that America was developing its own unique character, and that Loudon and the class he represented viewed this as decay. The gulf between Loudon and the provincials was about to be demonstrated by a series of disasters that we shall soon get into, but before we move away from quartering completely, I'd like to remind you of what, after the American Revolution, was made the Third Amendment to the Constitution and was part of the Bill of Rights. No soldier shall, in time of peace, be quartered in any house without the consent of the owner, nor in time of war, but in a manner to be prescribed by law. But now we need to return our attention north, to Canada. On August 11th, a large French force was spotted near Forces Wago. It was a 3,000-man-strong expeditionary force under the command of the Marquis de Montcalm. It was soon preparing to besiege the fort while Indian snipers began to open fire. This was a departure from traditional French tactics. In prior colonial wars, the French had used their Canadian militias and Indian allies to raid the frontier, and the Canadian Governor-General, Vaudreuil, wanted to use the same tactics. There was a certain logic to this. The Canadians and the Indians knew the terrain, and it was a great way of preventing a British invasion, but Montcalm opposed it. He thought the Indians were unreliable. As the Carthaginian general Mahabal would put it, the Indians knew how to gain a victory, but not how to use it. They would win a battle, and then collect the trophies of loot and scalps, and then take the booty home. They wouldn't press the advantage. 
He also viewed the Canadians as only slightly better, but not as reliable as European regulars. He couldn't completely disregard the Canadians and Indians through lack of alternatives. He brought with him 1,300 French infantry and artillerymen, 1,500 troops de la marine and militiamen, and a group of 250 Indians from several nations, including the Abenakis and Minonomies. The Indians and Canadians would fight the British out of the woods, while the French regulars would conduct a European-style siege of Fort Oswego. Unfortunately for the British, the defences had not been fully prepared, its layout was poorly planned, and it had only 1,135 defenders. The siege began on the afternoon of August 11th, 1756, and within two days, the British commander, Lieutenant General Mercer, ordered that the outlying Fort Ontario be abandoned. The next day, he awoke to find that the French had occupied Fort Ontario, and had mounted cannon facing Fort Oswego. A fight broke out between the two sets of cannon, in which Mercer was killed. His successor was so unnerved that within an hour he ordered a ceasefire and asked for terms. Montcalm did not think the British had fought well and was not kind with his terms. He said that the entire garrison would be taken prisoner. The British had no choice but to agree. Montcalm said that he would protect the British from the Indians and ensure that they made it safely to Montreal, but the Indians wanted rewards for their victory and so attacked the British captives to claim scalps and loot, killing a number between 30 and 100. Montcalm was mortified and omitted the incident from his official report. It was a victory the Canadians were very proud of, but Montcalm was not happy. He was drawing a very similar opinion of his provincials as Loudon was in Albany. Montcalm's aide-de-camp would write, The air one breathes here is contagious, and I fear lest a long sojourn here make us acquire the vices of a people to whom we communicate no virtues. Word began to make its way south of the disaster, along with many rumours. Major General Daniel Webb, who was third in command after Loudon and Abercrombie, began to believe that the French were advancing, and so he ordered that Fort Bull be destroyed, while he retreated to German Flats, about 70 miles west of Albany. Loudon thought that Webb had gone too far, but there was nothing he could do. The expedition against Crown Point was halted, and the commander of that force, Winslow, was instead to focus on his fortifications. Loudon had arrived in New York in July 1756, and within a month, the offensive capability of the British on their northern frontier was completely destroyed. Thanks for listening, I'll see you next time.